Welcome in, everyone, to episode 19 of Up and Down, a disc golf analytics podcast. I'm Jesse, joined as usual by Joey. Hello. We're the nerds who run this thing, and on this episode, we will be breaking down the 2022 MVP Open. But first, Joey, how you doing, my man? I'm doing extra well today. Um, I was actually at the MVP Open this past weekend, so I didn't so get to, jealous. I didn't get to play a lot of disc golf, but I got to watch a lot of disc golf, and that was very exciting. Yeah, I am extremely jealous. I have been to some bigger events like A tiers and things where there are a lot of touring pros there, and it is super cool. So I'm glad that you got an experience like that, and also super jealous that. It was an event as big as this one. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. I've I've never been to anything like that. So, you know, getting to see all these pros in person and things like that was just mind blowing to me. And got to watch some great disc golf and meet some cool people and hang out with some friends and had a blast. Yeah, how are you? Not too bad. I did get some new plastic this weekend, one of which was the Stat Mando Glow Z Zone which I was highly anticipating and the thing flies great. I got to say, so you know me, but for people who are not as familiar with my game, I love to bag discs from smaller manufacturers. And with that in mind, it almost pains me to say this, but I think the zone might be the best feeling disc on the market. Like feel a uh, hand feel. You just can't beat it. Yeah, I think for its slot, it it does its job the best, you know. I mean, you know that that's what I bag in that slot. And there's a million options in that slot, and I think they're all acceptable. But I think yep. the zone is the tried and true, and if you're looking for a place to start in getting a disc in that slot, it's it's a great option. Yeah, it really is. And the Glow Z plastic is super nice. So just yeah. And the stamps came out super clean. They're not huge, but they claim they came out really crisp. So just it's a beautiful disc. Only on infinitedisc.com. If you want one, you gotta go pick them up. Last I checked, they still have some left. So try yeah, one there's, out. There's a few left. They're they're going away, but you can still get one if you if you hop on there in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I was talking to Evan from Statmando and he was telling me that I, I haven't thrown one yet, but he's thrown his quite a bit. And it's it's actually pretty mild. I think we were expecting they'd be pretty stable. Because some of the other glowzy zones, you know, there was the Hamas run last year. Those were pretty stable, but I guess these are pretty mild. He said it flies like a nicely seasoned zone, you know, out of the box, which is really cool. Yeah, it's basically on a forehand for me, just throwing it straight. It holds straight for quite a long time before it fades out. So it's, it's, I definitely wouldn't say it's super beefy, but it's just a great, like workhorse overstable approach disc. Yeah. Love it. So All right. MVP open. Yeah. Let's dive right into 60 second stories here. All the biggest headlines from the weekend in 60 seconds or less a piece. Yeah. Right. First <laughs> off, let's just start in the MPO. This one was a wild one, but it is the hometown hero. Simon Lazat taking it down from the chase card for his fourth DGPT win of the season. Yeah, I, I think everybody in the disc golf world is excited for Simon about this. I think he's one of the most well-liked characters in the game. And it it was really 
emotional watching the final round coverage because there were so many people to root for. I mean, you had Corey Gannon and Linus Carlson that all were, I don't even want to say in contention because they were the contention, right? I mean, one of them was going to win. And then about halfway through that round, you started hearing that both Rick and Paul were putting up crazy good rounds. And Paul got in the clubhouse at 14 down and Simon got in the clubhouse at 16 down. And then on the final hole, Corey gets up there and is is tied with Simon at this point. And you're so excited because he can birdie this hole and then he has the best tee shot you've ever seen on hole 18 <laughs> yep. and then doesn't get up and down. Right. And I mean, that's the game, right? That's the sport and that's what's so exciting. But I love seeing new people win, but you you can't help but feel happy for Simon as as roller coaster of emotion it is because he's just such a likable guy. I mean, he put up an insane round, 10 down. He said that was the best that he's ever shot on Mabel Golds. And I the have best to imagine ever? that he has shot. That's what he said. In a tournament or ever? Ever. That's what he said to Brian Earhart in the DGN interview. Okay, wow. Yeah. I'll have to watch that again and make sure that that's what he said. But, um, I mean, that's that's an insane round there. And, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, on some of the coverage, they were calling it a course record because they made a couple tweaks to some of the tee pads. I think that's up for debate as to whether or not it was enough of a change to be considered a course record. But nevertheless, an insane round and one of the best ones we've seen on this course in, in a couple years. So what are some of the tee pads that they changed? So the only one that I know of is, so last year they, they moved hole 17 back. So yes. if you yep. grant that that voids previous course records and resets it, yep. I, I personally don't think that it's enough of a change that it does, but I get that there's some conversation there. And then this year, the big one was they moved hole 12 back about a hundred feet. Um, so that's the big long par four that goes downhill into the woods. So last year you were seeing those big distance guys actually crest the hill and get down there and yep. have almost like hundred foot Eagle throws. And now even the top distance guys were like just getting to the, to the top of the hill. There right. Right. With a look down, which is a really great change. I think it I'm, was a very I'm, good change. Yeah. I'm, I'm really thrilled about that one. Um, I think that was the only change this year um the only other change was the drop zone rules on hole 14 um so now there's actually two drop zones the first drop zone goes to the fpot pad and then the second drop zone is a like putting back at the water drop zone so again i don't know that that's super big of a change but it but it is a a change in a different course so um 10 down i guess would be the best round that we've seen on this updated layout yeah it was the hot round on the weekend so i gotta imagine that's the course record yeah sure so really cool for sure on the fpo side we had natalie ryan taking down the goliath Kristen tatar in a playoff no less for her second dgpt win of the season natalie ryan going into the final round did have the solo lead but Kristen and a few others were right on her tail it did come down to the final round. Kristen shooting tied for the hot round to force the playoff. Uh, Kristen 
tees off first in the playoff and has a good tee shot, but not a super long tee shot. You could tell with her going first, it was a little more of a conservative tee shot, although it wasn't a good position. Natalie steps up after and bombs a tee shot. We're talking, this is a fantastic tee shot, and I would find it hard to believe if she had a better tee shot all weekend. And Kristen goes up first on the second shot, places it just outside circle two. So it's inbounds, which is check number one. And it has a very good look, I would say, for the birdie, probably 34 feet. And knowing that Kristen has just done that, Natalie now have to has to step up and execute her approach shot, which is closer, but you still have to execute. And here's the thing about hole 18, which was the first playoff hole. I've played that hole maybe five or six times. And the approach is very deceiving because there's like three sets of rock walls. There's the rock wall that's close to where the drop zone is. And then there's the two rock walls that actually form the green where they have the mulch area and all that. And so it is kind of deceiving where your aim point is and figuring out where the green actually starts. Having the spectators there probably helps give you some more definition on where the back of that green is, but that upshot is not easy. And she executed it perfectly. She almost threw it too long, but she hits the back rock wall and puts it almost in the bullseye, maybe 12 feet. Uh, Kristen steps up. She does not make her circle two putt. It was extremely close. If it was two inches higher, it was certainly in. But there you have it. Natalie Ryan takes down Kristen for her second win of the season. Yeah, I was going to say, in case anybody forgot, Natalie did win D-Glow a couple months ago, which is awesome. I mean, two wins on Pro Tour in definitely not her first year on tour, but I, I'd say one of her breakout ish years you know this is the sure. the year that the year that we're really seeing her um come come into stride with her game and to win twice on tour in a year like that is is awesome so really really exciting for natalie definitely uh a defining moment in her season yeah so with that out of the way let's jump into what it takes where we break down our champions from the weekend and see what they did that set them apart from the rest so joey why don't we just start out here with simon lazat yeah so this is something that we were hoping to see we talked about this last week in our gmc video where we loved that gmc had a nice split between t to green and putting and we were anticipating that maple hill would be a course that would give us something similar and it is true for the most part that it did. So Simon did really well in the tee to green stats. He wasn't first. He was actually fourth in strokes gained tee to green. So Simon was behind Rick, Coriolis, and Kyle Klein in strokes gained tee to green. But Simon was sixth in strokes gained putting. And, you know... It was a different group of people that were ahead of him. Actually, Coriolis was was ahead of Simon in both of them. And the parity there was lost in, in OB strokes. But Simon was able to put 93% in Circle 1X, 
good enough for eighth in C1X putts, and that was seventh in strokes gained C1X. But combined with his strong tee to green performance and his strong putting performance, he was able to gain the strokes that he needed in both of those positions. And we really liked seeing that split. Interestingly, the the strokes gained putting was was almost as high as the strokes gained tee to green, which is really cool that there were strokes available in in both of those, you know, and in our putting episode that we did, I think that was episode 17, we talked about how shaking things up tee to green and having complicated holes and OB and things like that can really drive having you putt from different locations to force you into uncomfortable putting positions and making decisions on the green and how those things can drive separation. And some of the elements that we talked about, we saw at GMC and it's cool to see that on another course as well. I think these wooded courses do a really good job creating separation, both tee to green and putting. Yeah. It's and the woods, it's the elevation, it's the OB, the OB or yeah. pseudo OB like hole 14, right? With the water. Yeah. Well, the water is OB it's, it, but it's not artificial OB, which I guess is what I meant. Sure. So yeah, it just, it's got everything. So it's becoming clearer that once you have all those features on a course, the strokes gained in tee to green and putting start to become more similar. Yeah. On the FPO side, it was a similar story with a few outliers. So Natalie Ryan, just like Simon did really well tee to green. She was sixth in strokes gained tee to green. She was second in strokes gained putting, which is excellent. Putting 83% in C1X, which is really, really good for an FPO player. Her season average is 65% in C1X. And so before a, this event, it was 63.5. So she brought it up with with the 83. So, I mean, I mean that's a huge jump, you know, for her to, to really outplay her typical average is extremely impressive. And, and I, we all know that Natalie's an excellent tee to green player. I mean, she bombs the disc. So to see her come out and putt lights out, it, you know, it shows that she has the skills to do it. She's just got to put it all together. And I mean, she's got two wins this year. So really impressive. The outliers that I talk about are in in MPO, there was the, the top strokes gained tee to green player, which was, was Ricky, gained 10.7 strokes tee to green. And the top strokes gained putting player was, was Paul Macbeth and he gained eight strokes. So within two or three strokes there. So the top strokes gained tee to green player in FPO was Evelina Salonen. No surprises there. Nope. She, she gained 30 strokes. 30 strokes above the field average player, tee to green, which is nuts. I'm certain that you're going to talk more about that in a little bit. <laughs> but the strokes gained putting was only 11 on the best putter, and that was Macy Velodiaz, Natalie Ryan, just behind that at 10.8. However, if you knock off, you know, the, the first couple players tee to green, you know, Evelina was at 30. Page, huge jump down to 20 strokes gained tee to green, but still sort of an outlier. Once you get down into the three to five range, you've got, you know, 15 to 17 strokes gained tee to green compared to, you know, 10, 11 putting. So we're getting a little bit closer. So 
I think maybe it's not not quite as strong of a match TD Green and putting as it is in MPO, but it's still better than we see in most tournaments. And I think that's that's really cool. Totally agree. Yeah, the thing with Natalie's putting this year, I don't know if it's fair to say that she has been a below average putter. Maybe it is, but I think the biggest thing about her putting that stands out to me is how inconsistent it is. She has had tournaments where she's near the top in putting, but she has also had tournaments where she's, you know, dead last or second to last. So it's there. There are moments where it comes together, and clearly when it does come together, she's in the mix. Oh, for sure. So I think it's just a consistency. She has had more of those tournaments where it's clicking and it's coming together. So hopefully while she's in those phases, she's taking notes on what she's doing right and she'll be able to make that more consistent. And if she does, I mean, she'll be at the top pretty consistently. So be on the lookout for that. Yeah, really cool. Really excited about, you know, the next year coming up. This this did wrap up the Pro Tour season other than, you know, of course, the Pro Tour Championships. So a lot, a lot of excitement around this event being the final playoff event with a lot of players kind of in that bubble region, if you want to call it that, trying to fight for those last few points to, to clinch their spots or some of the players were fighting for, for buy, buy rounds um, in the Pro Tour Championships. So cool to see that all shake up, but nevertheless, it's easily my favorite event of the year at one of my favorite courses and it was really cool to be able to see it. I mean, to to meet some of these people and and watch them throw and watch them putt. It was it was insane. I my favorite moment. I was on hole two, and I was watching Greg Barsby, and he threw it a little bit short of the rock wall, maybe maybe like thirty feet back from it. So he's got about a hundred footer. And he takes his putter out and he starts doing that thing where he kind of rotates it in his hand. He kind of tosses it a little bit and you can see. Yeah, with the one-handed like rotation that he always does. Exactly. And I see him eye in the basket and I I look at my brother and we're both just thinking it like Greg's going to put this in. And and he didn't, but it was way, way closer than like I've ever seen anybody be without getting super lucky. Oh, of course. like. It, it was just like that was like the first moment in this day for us where we're just like this these guys are really good at this <laughs> like um yeah in insane and you know i i was working with evan from statmando we were doing some radar and distance for all the players that teed off so i got to watch every single player in both fields tee off which is really really cool and you know we were taking some data on that and you know looking at relationships between distance and velocity and things like that and it was a pretty windy day which made it really cool you know there was a lot of variation in release velocity versus distance and things like that and you know we were we had a board where we were hanging up you know the best of the day or the best of the card and things like that yep people were coming up to us and asking us about that and i think it's really cool to see people getting engaged in the stats and excited about it and talking about it and oh what player had the fastest throw and then you know we get to talk to them about that and um i i think that's awesome so was it anthony barella all all four rounds i i only know about friday and saturday i didn't check with evan about sunday 
because there's only three for MPO. I do know that right. Barella was the fastest release velocity on Friday and Saturday, and it was 73 miles per hour both times. And then Big Germ had the longest drive on Friday, and that was 6.15. Yep. And then on Saturday when I was there, it was Thomas Gilbert, and I believe that was 5.95. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure about Sunday. I think I heard that AJ Carey had like a 704-foot bomb or something. I mean, I can see it being done. Yeah. You know, it... it but I hadn't, I hadn't heard that's so big germs was the only one that was past 600 all weekend. Okay. So 700 would be insane, but it was, yeah. it was, it was pretty windy. So I, I could imagine him getting the right, the right turn on. It. I saw something on Instagram. Maybe it wasn't in a round, like maybe, but it was on that Statmando board that you were writing okay. distances on. Yeah, sure. So maybe it was like a, after the tournament distance contest or they did, I don't know. I think they did a distance contest and I know they were messing around with the, the million dollar ACE thing. Um, so maybe, right. maybe it was related to that. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was a really cool thing to be a part of. And the course is just beautiful. And if anybody gets a chance to go to any event, you know, not just a pro tour event, but go, go watch. It's so much fun. And there's, never a dull moment because you know do you go to one hole and watch everybody play that hole or do you follow a card or do you jump around you know there's so many options and i was there 8 a.m to 8 p.m and i wasn't bored for a moment it was yep. so cool yeah couldn't recommend it enough go uh it gives you a whole different appreciation for what these folks can do yeah love so, it with that is it crunch time it's definitely crunch time. All right. It's crunch time. We've crunched the numbers from the entire field, top to bottom, to bring you the coolest stats from the weekend. And I'll reiterate our point from last week. This is not the most important stats. It's just the coolest stats. It's whatever we, whatever tickles our fancy, if you will. So, with that, what I'm going to start out here is with a Paige Pierce stat. So... If you follow the Instagram, you will have seen that we posted a stat about this. Through the first three rounds, so again, keep in mind the FPO played four rounds, the MPO only played three, but the FPO played four, so through the first three rounds for the FPO combined, of those 54 holes, only seven of them played under par for the FPO. Those seven holes, Paige Pierce played four over, so not very good considering that she played the other 47 holes up to that point, three over. So she actually wow. played those 47 holes, the harder holes, one stroke better than the seven easiest holes. And then in round four, just in round four, there were seven holes that played under par. So there were as many in round four as the previous three rounds combined. In round four, she was able to play those seven holes two under. So she did rebound on the easier holes a little bit in round four she ended the tournament playing the 58 hardest holes so the holes that played over par she played those holes five strokes better than the field and this is a player who finished in fourth 
Yeah. I think. And so the vast majority. Third. Paige was third. Third. Okay. She was tied for fourth going into the final round. Yeah. But she did shoot the hot round or tied for it in the fourth round, moving up to third. So 58 of the 72 holes, the harder 58, shooting those five strokes better than the field. And she does not finish first. She lets the easy holes take advantage of her. And uh, you got to capitalize, right? And we saw this earlier, and that was kind of why we developed that statistic into our post-processing capabilities is because this is the kind of stuff we want to know, right? We, you, you always say, like, it's about taking, not letting the easy holes defeat you and then not necessarily losing ground on the harder ones. And she did everything that she could have possibly done on those harder 58 holes. But you got to get the muskets. Something right? happened on those muskets. And now, to be fair, is there really a must-get hole on Maple Hill? Eh, not really. So, there were some holes that had very high birdie percentages on the week. But yeah. I think for anyone who's played the course, you can see how any of those holes could get you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, For sure. There are stroke swings possible on every hole, right? There's, so There was only three holes in the final round that didn't have a double bogey on them. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Right. And and they did have double bogeys on them in every other round. There was no right. hole that didn't have a double or worth or worse, you know? Yep. So just it, it is a stat that really puts it in perspective, right? Like, 58 of the 72 holes, whatever percentage that is, it's a very high percentage. You can shoot, what, 75% of the holes or whatever, five strokes better than everyone else, but you still have to capitalize on those easy holes or you will not win the tournament. Yeah, it's, so. you got to get out of it. The hard one's alive, and, and there's a lot of those on Maple Hill that, you know, on on both golds and diamonds for the MPO and FPO layouts, you know, there's there's holes where you're you're not even thinking about birdie, right? You're just playing this to to avoid gaining strokes, right? And yeah, hole six. You're just playing hole six to survive. Yeah, you're just right. trying to make it through in one piece. That, ex exactly. I mean, that's such a crazy birdie to get that on. On either layout. I've, I've played them both, and they're ins absolutely insane. Yeah, but, the cameras don't do it justice how small that gap is. If, oh, if you can even say there's a gap. Yeah, you... And the, the OB is so tight on the right side. And then something that I don't think the cameras show well at all is that the left side opens up, and it's a giant pond. I mean, if you yep. get any kick even slightly left it's in a swamp and you are not getting that disc back. Like, so not only are you terrified about the OB on both sides, but you're worried about losing this disc and it's, it's a crazy hole. Staying in the FPO. Some people, it might not have been obvious watching coverage, but this tournament in the FPO was truly a three horse race. If you look at the scoreboard, Going into the playoff, you have Natalie Ryan and Kristen Sitar tied at one over par, and you have Paige Pierce tied, or tied, Paige Pierce at two over. So she's 
one stroke back of the leaders. From Page to fourth place, there is a five-stroke gap. So it goes from Page at two over to Deanne Carey and Holland Hanley at seven over. That difference of five strokes between third and fourth is greater than the difference between fourth and twelfth. Everyone between fourth and eleventh, there are two players tied for eleventh, was between seven over and eleven over. So looking at that, it really was a close tournament for most of the high performers in the field. And then you had Natalie Ryan, Kristen Starr, Paige Pierce just miles ahead of everybody else. Yeah, it's it's something we see I don't want to say with regularity, but it's not super uncommon in the FPO to have, you know, two or three of these players just absolutely take off, you know, against the rest of the field. And it it's different every tournament who those players are. Um, and, I, and I think part of it is just a smaller field size. But it, like you said, I mean, for most of the tournament, especially the final two rounds, it, it was it was a three horse race. Staying in the FPO still, I have to talk about Owen Scoggins. So Owen finished tied for sixth. She continues her incredible season, just top 10 after top 10 after top 10. In the MVP Open, she had the fewest holes over par of anyone in the FPO field with 15, so an average of just under four per round. But unfortunately for her, also had the fewest birdies of anyone who finished in the top 12. So if you look at these birdie percentages of players in the top 12, you have in first, Natalie Ryan, 29%. Right behind, Holland Hanley, 28%. Paige Pierce, 28%. There are, the only players under 20% are Owen at 18%, and then Deanne Carey at 19%. And Valerie Montano tied for 11th, also at 19%. So for the most part, to be in the top 10, you had to have 20 to 25% birdies. Uh, Owen not able to do that but with keeping the bogeys lower, she does keep herself in in the top 10 in tied for sixth. So great showing. Doing it in true own fashion. Own pretty consistently is not necessarily at the top in birdie percentage, but she has been one of the best players all season in minimizing the damage due to the bogeys or double bogeys. Yeah, it's... It's no surprise seeing Own play like that, but it it's always satisfying hearing that stat, you know? Yep, just classic Own things. Yep. So I got one for you. So every player went OB this, this past weekend. Yep. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Not even a but little bit. Something interesting that I noted, you know, we, we talk sometimes about, you know, the relationship between scoring really well T to green and having more OB strokes, you know, the, yep. the concept of being more aggressive and getting rewarded for it because your T to green stat, your strokes gain T to green doesn't take into consideration OB strokes. And that's actually really nice because then it doesn't matter if you win OB, it, it still tells you if you got there in fewer shots, even though it wasn't fewer strokes, right? It, it was less throws, but nevertheless, in... FPO, 
the the players at the top of the field did not have particularly few OB strokes. So for example, we had Missy Gannon had the lowest OB strokes of anybody that finished the event. There was a couple of DNFs um, and Missy had three OB strokes. So that was in, in four rounds and Missy finished 15th. So in MPO, the opposite was true. All of the players that finished in the top 16 had five or fewer OB strokes in, in their, in their three rounds, you know, and most of the players in the top six or seven had just two or three. And I think it's really interesting that in the FPO, it seems that being aggressive and taking, you know, some OB strokes in order to get rewarded T to green seems to to help in FPO, whereas in MPO, the players that played a little bit cleaner were re- rewarded more on this MPO layout than the FPO players were on the Diamonds layout. Yeah, we've been seeing that. Players like Paige Pierce is someone that we go to a lot for this example, but Paige has to be near the top in most OBs, right? She she goes OB a lot, but she consistently places well, and it reinforces what you showed uh, earlier this season looking at all the stats and how they correlate to birdie percentage. The OBs is the least correlated to birdie percentage out of anything. Right. And I, I bet that's especially true in the FPO. In FPO, yeah. Just, just based on what we've seen. I, I can't necessarily put rationale to that, but just based on what we see in players like Paige Pierce, I yeah, wouldn't be surprised I, if it was m- even more true in the FPO. I'll, I'll give you the numbers. So in, on the season, Paige is top 10 in everything except Circle 1X putts. She's 11th. So her worst okay. stat... Yeah out of fairway hits parked, C1 and C2 in regulation, birdie percentage scramble, and then both putting stats, her worst is 11th. And she is 56th in OB rate. Yep. So exactly like you said, way almost seems like out of character with the rest of her stats, but that's just the way that she plays the game. Yeah, and it works. It it absolutely does. All right, jumping over to Evelina Salonen, who also finished tied for 6th with Owen Scoggins. You alluded that I had to talk about it, and I am certainly going to. So the story with Evelina usually is in the putting. She has been getting better of late, but had a little bit of a regression at this tournament with the strokes gained putting, losing just under 15 strokes to the field in putting, and 14 strokes specifically in C1X. Both of those were the worst in the field by quite some margin. However... Finishing tied for sixth makes it evident that she was able to make up for that tee to green. Like you said earlier, just under 30 strokes gained tee to green, which was the most by right around 10 strokes. So that brings us to our first guess the stat. So like I just said, Joe, Evelina had the most strokes gained tee to green by just under 10. The exact number was 9.75. So, knowing that she was that far ahead of everybody else, how many standard deviations do you think 
her tee to green performance was above the mean. Okay, so I'm gonna. So she was about 30 strokes gained tee to green. Obviously, the mean is zero. And I think our field size was around 40 or exactly 40. I think it was exactly 40. So. I hear some clicking. Are you breaking out the calculator? No, I'm, I'm, I'm mindlessly clicking as I think through. Um, I think it's, it's gotta be more than three. It's probably like three and a half. 1.84. What? It's standard deviations above the mean. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Because there were two players who lost like 40 or 50 strokes to green. And so it greatly increased the value of one oh. standard deviation. Yeah. So the I, value of one standard deviation was very high. I I never would have guessed that. Yep. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I I figured that would be a good candidate for a three standard deviation performance, and it wasn't even two. Wow. So knowing that her incredible tee to green performance was less than two standard deviations above the mean. What do you think her putting performance was in terms of standard deviations below the mean? Okay, so this this one I know the cap on, right? Because I already said Macy Velodiaz had 11 strokes gained putting, and that was yep. first. Yep. So I know that Evelina's was worse than that. I think it was around 14 or 15 strokes that she had lost. Yep, closer to 15. Yeah, so... I, I think I'll go back to my number and say, you know, something in the three or three and a half range. Okay. It is, you're, you're on the right track. It is 2.6. Okay. That's still really far off. Yeah. And a field size of 40. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's pretty far off. The, her standard deviations below the mean in C1X in particular was even a little bit higher, but it was still under three. It was 2.71. Ouch. Yep. Now, back to the positives for Evelina. So the tee to green, 30 strokes in tee to green, obviously wild. Her circle one in regulation, which I wrote in my notes as C1X, and that's not true at all. Circle one in regulation, 50%. Unreal. The next best was 32%. And she got 50% percent that can't be exaggerated enough so to put those in actual numbers the fpo played four rounds so they played 72 holes 50 percent circle one in regulation is 36 circle ones in regulation the next best was like 23 yeah so i mean we're talking 50 percent more circle one in regulations than anybody else and to go one step further she had 50 percent circle one in regulation outside of herself there were only seven other women who got to circle two in regulation at 50 percent or better i there's there's no other way to say it i mean you look at her stats first in fairway hits first in parked first in circle one regulation first in circle two in regulation i mean (laughs) 
she has it all. It's insane. Even on the year, she's first in fairway hits, first in circle one regulation, first in circle two in regulation. She's third in parked. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy how how far and away she is tee to green. It's it, it's like she's two totally different players, you know? And she's 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 pushing standard deviations on the tee to green game in one direction, but unfortunately she's pushing she's pushing them in the other direction putting, you know? Right, yeah. And, and it's hard to even say that she's definitively the best tee to green player in the FPO because every once in a while, Henna has those rounds where she's miles right. ahead of everyone else, including Evelina. And yeah, I mean, just last week at GMC, Henna had one of the best tee to green performances that we've ever seen. And if you haven't seen our strokes gain spread for that tournament, go check it out because that illustrates it pretty clearly. So, yeah, with both of those two women, between the two of them, it, there is nobody close. Yeah, it's... So, to to put it in perspective, Evelina was in sixth place. Her score was plus eight. Natalie and Kristen tied at plus one. So, seven strokes behind the lead. She lost 15 strokes to the field putting. So if instead of being in 40th place strokes gain putting, if she was 35th, you know, still not good, but yep. but she would have gained nine more strokes or, or not lost nine more strokes. I mean, she would have won by a, like a lot. Yeah, there wouldn't have even yeah. had to have been a playoff. <laughs> it's... It's it's hard to swallow sometimes. Yeah, and she does have those tournaments where she puts decently, right? Above average. Close, cl- closer to average, yeah. Yeah, and, so... And that's all it takes for her to, like, almost run away with it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... To, to sum it up, like you said, Circle 1 regulation, Evelina, 50%. Circle 1 regulation, second place... You said it was 32%. It was a tie between Paige and Holland Hanley. Evelina ended up birdieing 25% of holes. So only half of the holes that she ended up in circle one in regulation in, she birdied. Obviously, there's some circle two stuff, but in yeah, general. Yeah. Where Paige, who was in circle one in regulation 32% of the time, birdied 28% of the yeah, holes. Yeah, wow. Right? So she was in circle one a, a little bit more than half but but quite a bit less than evelina was and she actually birdied more holes yeah that is wild and so did holland hanley and so did henna you know and henna henna lost strokes to the field putting as well yep and she was 32 percent in circle one in regulation and she's she still birdied the same number of holes as evelina yeah yeah you know so we went from talking about own the best putter in the FPO, without question, to Evelina, who arguably is the worst, to Alexis Mondahano now, who is at at least top three, I think, putters in the FPO for sure. And I don't even know who the third person would be. I'm just putting some margin on there. Gotta be top three. However, on the tournament, 40 players in the field. Alexis finishes 32nd this week. Not what she was hoping for. 
And coming off last week, we mentioned that she had lost some strokes uh, in C1X, and it was only the third time that that had happened. Actually, she did not lose, lose strokes in C1X. She lost strokes putting, but not in C1X, if I remember right. At this tournament, the story just got even worse. She lost over five and a half strokes to the field in C1X. So by far her worst on the year. It's the first time that she has lost more than half a stroke to the field in C1X. And obviously it was way more than that at five and a half. Yeah. However, she still does not lose strokes to the field putting because she gained six more strokes in circle two. First place, circle two putts. Yes, not the first time this season, almost certainly. Nobody else compared to Alexis's 5.97, nobody else gained more than 3.1 in circle double. two. Pretty much double. Her putting percentage from circle two was 25%. It was the best in the field. The next best was 23%. That was Owen Scoggins, of course. But Owen only attempted 13 putts, whereas Alexis had 28. So she had more than double the attempts and still had a higher overall percentage than probably the best circle two putter in the FPO right now, Owen Scoggins. You can take away the probably on that, but yes. But yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, to keep going with your, your stat here, you're saying you think Alexis is probably top three. She is third right now in circle one X putting on the 2022 season. Of course, Owen is first. Is and it, guesses is it, is it second? Lisa Fakus? It is not Lisa Fakus. Uh, is it Valerie? It is Valerie. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I know they've been, Valerie and Alexis have both been close all year, but I definitely would have put my money on Alexis to have the higher putting numbers. But I'm sure it's very close. Okay, next next one. We're going to play a little guess the stat off Heck the cuff yeah. here. How's this? So you said Alexis putted 25%. Obviously, that's excellent in circle two putting. What is Own Scoggins on the year circle two putting percentage? 34. 32, but okay. that's insane. Yep. <laughs> who, who it is doesn't matter. What is the second place player's circle two putting percentage? Hmm. So as far as who it is, I'm thinking it is either Kristen Tatar or Paige Pierce. It could be Julie Moens. I don't think she's played as many events. But those are the three players I have in my head. Holland Hanley is up there as well. I'm going to say the number is probably like 25%. It's 23. Oh, my God. 32 <laughs> to 23. Crazy. Yeah, that's... Huge drop. So it's it's actually 23% is Ellie Bryant and 21% is Heather Young, both of which only played four events this year. Yeah, so yeah. So in, in fourth place is Katrina Allen, who has obviously okay. played many, many events, and yep. she's at 20%. So Owen is making almost 50% more, and by that I mean 50% of 20%. So yeah, 1.5 yeah. times as many putts as Katrina Allen, it's who is like, an excellent circle two putter. It's like 75% more. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. You said 32, right? Not 34? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 32. Yeah, yeah. So Still. 60% more. It's... <laughs> Owen is so good. <laughs> I don't get it. it. It makes no sense. 
yeah. Own is so good. I mean, we could do a whole episode on it, and we we maybe even will. About... I I would say during the off season we probably yeah, should for sure, and you know dig up the old stats about some past seasons and things like that. But I mean, this is as far as I can tell the best FPO putting season of all time, definitely within Pro Tour history. Um, obviously that's what we have the most stats for in both circle one and circle two. It's unbelievable. Yep. And that's a good segue here as we transition to the MPO, because obviously Owens Goggins, possibly the best putting season in DGPT history. I would have to say it probably is. Yeah. Another guy who's having a really good putting season this year is Andrew Marweed. Now, is it the best of all time? Remains to be seen. In fact, we'll probably talk about his putting in another episode as well. But at this tournament, MVP Open, first in strokes gained C1X at a little over five and a half. It is his third straight tournament finishing first in strokes gained C1X and the sixth time that he's done it in the last seven events. He... (sighs) I we we've known Andrew Marweed was an amazing Circle One X putter for quite some time now. You know, last year he tied Coriolis at ninety percent. In twenty twenty, he led the field at eighty eight percent, and I mean he was top six in twenty nineteen as well. You know, so he's been good for a long time, but he keeps clicking it up just a percent or two each year, and just outpacing these guys who are insane putters. You know, and now you've got a guy like Ginn and Burr in the mix. I mean, he was there last year as well, but and to just beat all these guys and then put up a ninety-two percent on the season. Yeah, and I think it's ninety-two point four, so it yeah. almost rounds up to ninety-three. I mean, that's that's more than we've ever seen in a season, right? And he's played a lot of events, and what <laughs> what is like cool and interesting about this is so last year Coriolis you know he finished in first tied with Andrew Marweed circle one x putting 90 percent and Corey also took it down in circle two at 36 percent which is really awesome but what's interesting is this year in in circle two Andrew putted 37 percent which is better than Corey did last year but Gannon Burr put up 37 as well, and Cameron Messerschmidt put up 39%. Now, Cameron hasn't played as many events as the other guys, but he's still played six events. I mean, that that's that's a good amount of events. I mean, he's had about 100 Circle 2 putt attempts, so that that's more than a good enough sample size to say that he deserves that 39% stat to put him in first. Yeah, for so sure. So now, you know, there's so many guys at the top there that it's not the same person taking it down in circle one and circle two, which is it sort of understates or sorry, underlines how awesome Corey's season was putting last year. But for Andrew to improve on both of those stats that anybody had last year and do any put up even bigger numbers this year is crazy. In Marweed's last seven events, his C1X putting is over 97%. He has attempted that? he has attempted 286 C1X putts and he's missed 8 of them. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I like we we made a graphic. It's on the Instagram. 
I had to, I wrote that post and I had to read it. I've read that post probably 10 or 12 times just trying to make sense and like make sure I, I didn't type the numbers wrong. Like, which actually reminds me. So we put up a post about Ricky Wysocki and his streak of 45 straight events gaining strokes to the field in C1X. And I was eating dinner and I was thinking about that number and he's played 16 events this season gaining strokes in C1X. And then I thought back and I said, well, in 2020, he probably only played like three events. So the rest of those events had to have been in 2021, but there's no way they that he played that many events in 2021. So I must have got that 45 number wrong. And so I went back and counted again and I did get it wrong, but the number got bigger. Oh my God. They went up to 47. I don't know how I miscounted, but it actually increased to 47. It turns out in 2022, Ricky Wysocki still played in in 12 events that season, which is way more than I thought. You mean 2020? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He still played in 12 events that year. Yeah, that's that's quite a bit. Right. And so it it makes the numbers work out, right? Yeah, sure. Um but my little sanity check did not account for playing 12 events in 2020. And so when I went back and redid the math, <laughs> I I did have the wrong number. 45 was not the right number, but it was too low. <laughs> so, pretty wild. Uh and yeah. these Andrew Marweed numbers same thing. Like you see 97.2% in the last seven events and it's just one of those numbers that's like it makes you wonder if you counted everything right because it just doesn't seem real yeah it's i think i i mean we're definitely gonna do an episode at the end of the season where we talk about all the superlatives right you know best in each of the stats and blah 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 that'll be a fun one yeah for sure i I really think we could do a whole episode just on andrew and own or maybe even an episode for each of them just to talk about and dive into event by event and things like that it's it really can't be overstated how incredible these performances are yeah absolutely and and it's it's one of my favorite stats because it's the the sample size is huge right it's you really have to be on top of it and performing well in so many events across so many rounds it's it's not about wins it's not about throwing the disc it's about consistency on the green and the numbers don't lie you know and eight missed out of what was the number 270 whatever 286 yeah that's crazy yeah and that's that's what makes the ricky wysocki number so crazy and if you haven't seen the instagram post i'll i'll give you the the stat again so the mvp open this year was the first tournament that ricky lost strokes to the field in c1x since waco in 2020 which was two and a half years ago. So in that span, he had a streak of 47 consecutive events gaining strokes on the field in C1X. And think about what happened in that time, right? So Ricky has been battling Lyme disease, I think was in that time frame. Maybe it was 
before. I don't remember. But that was a lingering thing for him that he had to deal with. He's had knee issues this year. He had, I think, rib injuries earlier this season. We noticed his his putting was kind of off. Um, he was dealing with some kind of injury in the middle of the season. He had I a. It was his, I thought it was his back. Yeah, I think you're right. He had a bag swap in the middle of that stretch, going from Innova to Dynamic, and it none of it mattered. Right? He was just super consistent for two and a half years worth of events. Yep. I. I saw on hole 14 on Saturday, Rick threw a pretty good drive, and, and on hole 14, most of the pretty good drives skip left toward the wood line. Yep. And I got so excited to watch Ricky put down this putt because how, how could he not put right. down this putt? Yep. It was like 30 feet. And he hit the cage, and I was so bummed out because I was so excited to watch Ricky yep. put put in this putt because like he's such a fearless putter and he puts with so much pace regardless of the fact that there's water right behind him and yep. um obviously at that point I had no idea that he was having an off tournament in general putting but it was it, it was a bummer because it was the one putt that I saw Ricky throw and you know I think of Ricky as one of the best putters on tour. Of all time. Yeah, of course. And to to see him to see him miss it was was a bummer. Yeah. So interestingly enough, so you were there for round two, right? Yeah, that's right. So round two was actually the only individual round where he lost strokes to the field in C one X. He gained strokes in round one and round three, but he lost like one point eight or something in round two. And that was enough to overcome what he gained in the other two rounds. So you're telling me if he hit that putt, he might have been over. It possibly. So the I guess it depends on the average, yeah. Yeah, so the strokes gain numbers are calculated on a per course, like per round basis rather than per hole. Is that right. for the putting ones, yeah. Right. So I think uh yeah, I mean, missing that putt, he probably lost three quarters of a stroke in C1X because of that putt. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. So, yeah, I I think it might be safe to say that if he makes that putt, we're not having this conversation. Yep. So, I, I've got two more. I, obviously, we're getting close on time, but I, this is really exciting tournament. I think it's worth worth talking about. So... The the first one is something that I saw on that hole. And hole fourteen, I, you're talking. Hole fourteen. So this I didn't see this talked about on every on any coverage or anything like that. I didn't watch Chase Card coverage for round two because I was there. But <laughs> maybe it's talked about on that. I don't know. But if you remember GMC, do you remember the umbrella debacle? Yes. Yep. Of Which course. was also so, hole fourteen. Yes. So just to catch everybody up, Ricky throws his tee shot. It looks like it's definitely going out of bounds. It hits a spectator's umbrella and stays in bounds. What happens after that is irrelevant. Clearly, a spectator had some effect on it. And this isn't the first time we've seen this even this year. Um, I forget which tournament it was at, but Gannon threw a shot. What's the 
the course with the, the hole from the bridge. Thank you. Yep. And it, you know, goes OB long, but like was kind of catching edge and like it probably wouldn't have come back in, but he'd like to have the chance and it, it hit a spectator's leg because the spectator was, you know, only a few feet back from the OB line and, and it stopped there. So these conversation has have been coming up, but I think this one is by far the the craziest one, and I haven't even talked to you about this. No, you so haven't. <laughs> I'm excited to hear your reactions about this. So the the chase card comes through, and Big Germ, Ben Calloway, these guys are are coming through, and actually my my brother and I and my brother's girlfriend had to dodge what we didn't realize was big germs shot at the time. Um, <laughs> it literally had to like split paths and, and it went right between us. Um, wow. Great. Crazy. Um, at first I thought it was a halo boss, but it might've been a halo thunderbird. Cause I can't imagine he threw a boss on that hole, but nevertheless, it was yep. a, a, bl- a blue halo disc. Um, Drew Gibson was on the card and then I, I forget the, the last guy, but, Everybody throws their shots, and it's about five minutes before they they actually come to their discs because, you know, there's other cards on hole 13, you know, lead cards on hole 13 at that point. So the the path to get from hole 14 T to the green kind of passes close to the hole 13 pin. So there's some waiting, and we're all talking, and their discs, you know, one of the discs is is pretty close to I think it's in circle one and then the rest of them are kind of just littered throughout the the 50 feet of woods or so there. And there's a spectator rope that we're all standing behind and two of the three discs are, are 30 or 40 feet behind the spectator rope. And this guy walks up and picks up Ben Calloway's disc. Big Z Onyx picks it up gets like 10 feet and everybody freaks the heck out. Right. Everybody's like, what are you doing? Screaming at this guy. And the guy kind of like, like, like scrambles and just like tosses it back in the general direction from whence it came. Right. And it, you know, dances around a little bit and, and settles so the players come down and and blah, 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 and everybody's freaking out, and the, the guy doesn't really know what to say, and he's obviously embarrassed and, and yeah, wasn't yeah. thinking. And, and the only thing I can imagine is that he, he must have thought the spectator line was OB. Yeah. So he was just grabbing the disc, but it's still, that's not an excuse. I mean, you wouldn't grab a disc that was OB because, you know, they want to see where it went out of bounds and things like that. Yeah. But nevertheless, it I was... <sighs> the the players come down and i he felt bad enough that i you know to his credit this this guy did go up to big german ben and the spotter that was there who the spotter was trying to explain what had happened um and the spotter's just a volunteer right it, it, he's not like a pro tour official or anything like that right and, and and this guy does go up and say you know i i was the one that touched the disc i i think it was about here and enough people had seen it that they knew where it was and I, I'm not sure how the card resolved it. I do know that Ben ori- did play the original lie. I'm not sure if they gave Ben the choice or not. I don't. I don't really know how it shook out. But he did get up and down, which is really, really important. I think it would have been a bigger deal if if he didn't. Um, it was a really cool out, actually, 
for for Ben to get up and down from there, especially given the emotion of what had just happened. But right, I I think it's like another chapter in this conversation about you know spectators' involvement and what is what is the pro tour's role in policing these sorts of things and should spectators be further away is it affecting the game you know is there somebody whose role it is to make sure that that guy's umbrella wasn't in bounds you know is is it it's somebody's role to make sure that if the discs land in a spectator area that you know somebody's got eyes on them so nobody interferes with that you know, if the spectator area is not out of bounds. And I, I think there's a lot of conversations that can be had about that, but it was a really interesting situation that, you know, I, I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah, it's certainly conversations that I'm sure will happen in the near yes. future, right? I, I hope so. Because yeah. how many of these instances have happened in the past that no one's talked about? I mean, this is one that, no, like you said, nobody's no, talked and- about. So there's... Certainly, there have been more instances like this that have happened. Of course, and and Ben was like vying for lead card contention at this point, right? Right. In in, in coming down the stretch in round two, so I mean, it it definitely could have had an effect on it. And obviously, there's all the unspoken stuff. Forget about a stroke here or there. I mean, you know, what does that do to Ben's mental game in that point? You know, and it, that's not fair to any player to have to be on the receiving end of a situation like that. You know. And right. it was it was really interesting. All right, so I've got one more stat, and I think you'll like this one. This is a Paul Kranz stat. Okay, so Paul's a really nice guy. Paul Kranz was it U.S. Amateur Champion or World Amateur Champion? I be- I believe it was U.S. Amateur. Okay, so that's who this guy is, right? Young guy from Massachusetts. He finished tied for 55th, so that's a great showing, if you ask me. However, there were only two players in the field who had lower circle one in regulation than Paul Kranz. So despite the low circle one in regulation percentage, which was 13%, by the way, still able to finish tied for 55th in the tournament. So how did he do it? Paul Kranz finished eighth in strokes gained putting with just a hair over five. In circle two, he was second in strokes gained circle two with four and a half. And he was first in circle two putting percentage with 45%. That's awesome. How cool is that, huh? Love to see that. Uh, just a small correction. It wasn't US AMs that he won. He got second in US AMs. It was AM Worlds okay. that Paul won. Cool. Yeah. Nevertheless, really cool. I I had the pleasure of playing around with Paul. Um, actually, this was like a couple weeks before uh, AM Worlds. Right. And it was he was a really nice guy, insane player, especially for his age. I think he, I think just that week he had crossed the the thousand rating threshold. Um. So we, we, we knew each other through a mutual friend and we had the pleasure of playing around together and it was it was really cool to see. Nice guy. Yeah, cool. All right. Do you have anything else for crunch time? Yeah, I do. I have one last stat. I, I think we can make it a guess the stat. So now that the the regular season, if you want to call it, of the, the Pro Tour is over, 
uh, Ricky Waisaki is the the MPO points champion, and Kristen, you know, to nobody's surprise, is the FPO points champion. So this is Ricky's fourth Pro Tour points standings win in the seven years of the Pro Tour, which is crazy. I want you to tell me the other three players, the other the other three years. I, I want you to fill in the blanks for me. So it's 2016 was the first year on the Pro Tour. Correct. Yep. Who who won that year? Who do you think won that year? In 2016. So that I'm not was saying, the I'm not saying Rick did or didn't win. Right, right, no, right. Let's just go up the up the stretch. Yep. So what I'm the first thing I'm wondering is Paul Macbeth. So I know Paul won the world championships in 2012, 13, 14, and 15. Yep. So had he won worlds in 2016, I think he would have been my first guess. But I'm actually going to say that Ricky was one, he, one of his years was 2016. That's right. Okay. Next. 2017, Ricky won the world championship in 2017 so i will give he did he he did win it in 2016 as well oh okay i thought his two years were 17 and 18 but greg barsby won in 2018 that's right right okay so 2017 i will also give it to ricky yep okay 2018 hmm was it paul Macbeth? It sure was. Really? Okay. Yeah. Cool. 2019. 2019, I'm also going to say Paul Macbeth. You got it. Okay. 2020. 2020. So you you know that 2022 was Rick, and the fourth year would have to be 2021 or 2020. Right, right. So So one of those two years is Rick. Yep. Oh man. You know, I should remember who won it last year. I the the point standings to me is just not one of those things that like it's not like winning a major, you know. No, so that that no. tends to be one of the things that I It's just like a regular season record. Yeah, you know, it, that, that type of thing isn't something that sticks with me. So yeah, I sure. don't remember who won the points thing last year. But I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that Ricky got it in 2021. And I'm going to say that not necessarily like a outlier, but someone you wouldn't necessarily expect would get it in 2020 just because of how weird that was. I'm going to say maybe Eagle got it in 2020. All right, so you had everything exactly right except for 2020. Okay. It it was Paul again. Okay. In in 2020. So every Pro Tour points standings win <laughs> has been either Rick or Paul. So Rick 2016 and 2017 and then again in 2021 and 2022. Yeah. And then Paul had the 3 years in the middle there. Um wow. just some 
a fun little little history throwback here. Some other players that have got in the top three in the past years. This is just to show you how how far the Pro Tour has come. Yep. And and I just I don't mean anything against these players. I just mean you know these are names that you don't hear about at the top of the point standings anymore. Can I take a guess for 2016? Please. Nate Doss. Nate Doss is third, yeah. Yes, and let's then, go. And then Kale Leviska is second. Oh, um, wow. Okay, I was thinking maybe cool. like Nico LaCastro, you know. But okay, yep. yeah, that's super Tw- cool. 2017, big German third. Nice. Very yeah, cool. how cool is that? Simon in fourth, actually. Cool, yep. 2018 in fourth place, Nate Sexton. Very in cool. third, James Conrad. Nice. Um, You know, these are guys that we obviously think of as strong players, but just like maybe a little bit past their prime or maybe not in that top 10 but yeah uh, yeah. they certainly have been in years past 2019 simon was in third double g and kevin jones five and four nice yeah pretty cool to see some some different names there in 2020 it's it's the top five we've we've known to grow in love at this point paul calvin rick eagle chris yep um that's your typical top five at this point and then in 2021 Adam Hammes broke into fifth. So nice. Chris actually fell all the way back down to 10th. And then in 2022, this is uh, Simon's comeback, of course. But Simon actually didn't break the top five, despite having four Pro Tour wins. Wild. Gannon, Gannon Burr in fourth yep. and Chris Chris in fifth. I mean, Simon's only like a, po- a point behind Chris, whatever that means. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and that I mean, Chris won a major versus Simon's four wins and blah blah blah. But really interesting. I I would have thought Simon was like easily locked in top three. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Yeah. I think. Uh, I don't know that Simon played all his events. I don't think he played enough Silver Series to like not to sorry to like fill up the the three finishes or or whatever I'm, I'm not certain i'd have to look a little deeper but so um, here's a quick guess the stat for you guess how yep. many silver series ricky played this year uh i know he played belton i think maybe that's the only one you are exactly correct yeah All he right, played so belton and that was it cool so i guess it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah i think even winning a silver series you only get like 25 points or something yeah so. and and what's cool is i mean it's not it's not cool but ricky didn't win a major and he he actually didn't even do particularly well at any of the majors well he came in second at champions cup oh that's right that feels like so long ago yeah it does <laughs> okay all right so i i take that back that that is obviously a great performance yep cool Cool. Well, that's all we got for this week. All stats cited on the podcast come from Udisc Live and Statmando. Thanks to them, as always. And Joey, I think that's all we've got. That is all we got. Be on the lookout soon for recaps of the upcoming tournaments. We've got USDGC, the Pro Tour Championship, Throw Pink Women's, and we're going to jump into some off-season stuff within the next month or so. We're going to talk a lot about some of the deeper dives that aren't so tournament-focused, talking about you know who is at the top of the list in each of the stats, maybe doing some deep dives on those particular players and their stats over the years. 
really excited about all that stuff. So until next time, peace.